to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. And this is just not any week. This is the final episode of 2023. What? Woo! Can you believe it? <laughs> I am your host and producer of the Happy Hour, Olga Peters, and I am speaking today with Representative Emily Kornheiser, who's the regular contributor of this show and is sitting down in her lovely house in Brattleboro. Hello, Emily. Hi, Olga. And I also want to welcome back to the show because it's we were just reminiscing. It's been forever, way too long. Representative Jill Krowinski, who is also the speaker of the house and... Part of our reminiscing was she was elected on January 6, 2021. Such a way to just begin your life as speaker. Um, but you have actually been in the House since 2012. Is that correct, Jill? That's right. I was appointed to the House by uh, then Governor Shumlin. That's right. And which district do you serve? I'm sorry, I've forgotten. So I represent the Old North End in downtown Burlington, which is known as Chittenden 16. Okay. Only by the six people who pay attention to their numbers <laughs> the and numbers. everyone else calls it the old North End. Yeah. <laughs> it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, thank you for taking time because I know as the year winds down and, and you're ramping up for, for the new session, things can get very busy. But that's what I wanted to talk to both you and Emily about today is just looking ahead to the the next session or the upcoming session and talking about priorities for the house One thing I wanted to start with, just something my brain's been working on, is you represent the Democratic Party. It is the prominent party in the House right now, and that's one reason you're Speaker. But as Speaker, you also represent the whole legislature, which is not just Democrats. And so I would love to hear first... What is that like, juggling all the different opinions and views and belief systems that make up our legislation or the people who make up the legislation? I love that question, Olga. I'm so excited (laughs) to hear Jill's answer. (laughs) For a little bit more context, I served as majority leader for four years. So in that role, my job was to support our Democratic caucus and make sure that our goals were very clear, being met, you know, supporting our candidates to make sure they were getting reelected. They had the tools that they needed to talk with their constituents about what we were working on and to get feedback. So from there to have the unexpected opportunity to become Speaker of the House, which I had not been planning to run for Speaker, but the, the Speaker at the time, Representative Mitzi Johnson, had unexpectedly lost her race. And so uh, I had to make a quick decision whether to run or not and decided to to, to run. And so that was in November. And then there was a primary for the Democratic nominee for speaker. And so I was fortunate to receive that honor in December and then was elected speaker in January. And so there was not a lot of time to ramp up. To, to start, but I was very fortunate to have a great team coming together. And what was really special for me is that there was no opposition to my candidacy. Usually, typically, there is a candidate either from the Republican Party or a different party to run in that race. And it was a very difficult time with COVID, but also 
you know, it was a time where we were working and we continue to work really closely together to make sure that the house is functioning the, the best way that it can and that there are open lines of communication. And so from going from a position of making sure our Democratic caucus was in a was in a good place to making sure everyone was in a good place um, was a natural next step for me because we've been working so closely together through COVID on how we would govern in the building, how we, you know, uh, left the building during COVID and how we come, how we came back to the building during COVID. And what's really important to me is making sure that I'm having as many one-on-one conversations with members from any party all the time. So for example, this summer and fall, I went around the state and visited with members in districts, Republicans, Democrats, just to see, like be in their district and meet people in their district. And they would say, you know, you're coming to my district. I really want you to go to this farm. They're doing really great things. Or I want you to come to my district. There's like this really great logging operation happening. I want you to go see it. And, you know, there's one representative who represents the part of the Northeast Kingdom as a Republican who would say from time to time on the floor, you know, you, no one comes to my district. No one knows what it's like up here and what our challenges are. And so I made a note, I got to go to Representative Williams district this summer, fall. And I did. And it was a great experience. And I met some awesome people just really doing great things up in the kingdom. And so for me, you know, having this great honor of leading the Vermont House and being speaker is just an amazing opportunity. And I get to meet people I, I wouldn't have met out, you know, if I wasn't doing this work and to see places across our state that again are just doing like really wonderful things for Vermont. And so yeah, it's a great, it's a great job. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am impressed with how you've traveled around the state because my friends and I were talking the other day. A friend of mine is part of the two 251 club. Yes, yes. Yes. And thinking about all the places, we're such a small state, but so often we stay in our own little counties. Level. We don't tend to travel far and wide mm-hmm. within our states, just in general, I think. Yeah, I often have members who say they haven't been to Brattleboro, and I'm like, we're on the way to like the entire Anything like, rest of the country. <laughs> like, how, have you not, how have you not been here? Like, there's three exits to stop for gasoline, at least. I don't understand. <laughs> Uh, One of the things I've always been struck with, Jill, about your work and why it's sort of important to talk to all members, and you've highlighted this, but I don't know if the public understands, is that, yes, there's like all of the really important policy stuff and the presiding over the policy and the political negotiations, but you're also just responsible for all the people Mm -hmm. who are just people in a workplace doing their various things that people do in workplaces for better and for worse. And that piece of it especially as, you know, over the last few years, I think you've done a huge amount to strengthen just the legislature's ability to function on a day-to-day basis. You know, we didn't even have like an HR director until very recently, just for example. Yes, yes. That's a really interesting uh, and good point. And I think a lot of people don't know exactly what the speaker does. And I think even members uh, don't have a full sense of the scope of the amount of work that the speaker does to support the entire building. So not only the members, but everything from making sure that all of our employees are taken care of, 
that they feel valued and heard from, making sure morale is good, making sure that we have the tools that we need. I have so many conversations about IT (laughs) Um, (laughs) and making sure that we have the tools for, for our IT department. For example, when the flood happened in July, we had just purchased all of this IT equipment and it was all ruined in the flood. And so just supporting our incredible IT staff during that really difficult time, they are the best. So yeah, and like, we're in the process of hiring, we have several positions open. So I'm involved in the hiring process, different stages and supporting our HR department with whatever challenges or opportunities that come up. And yeah, and then just supporting whatever's happening in the building. And sometimes there are disagreements between members or there's conflict and I will be involved in that and help support uh, a productive outcome. (laughs) So yeah, it's, it's fascinating. There's the policy work, there's the press work, there's the people work and there's the building work. And it's such a unique job Mm. for sure. What has it taught you since you've taken taken the role in 2021? I have uh, gained patience. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it is best to give a situation a little bit of time before mm. jumping in and solving a problem. I uh, My natural instinct is to jump right in and solve, solve, solve. Yeah. And um it's really hard for me to take a deep breath and be like, okay, like, let's let things settle for a second. I'm just, I, I love being a problem solver. It's like my natural mission to do. And so I have gained that skill and tool in this work um, to take a deep breath and to let things settle a little bit before jumping in or delegating that to other people. And so, yeah, I would say that. Let's take a step back, if if you and Emily don't mind, Jill, and just quickly remind people, in 2023, what were some of the big legislative moments, either mm. things that passed or did not pass? Just a quick overview to remind folks. Thank you for that, Olga, because we did so much, so much. good work in 2023, and I have to say it's so hard for me to remember it on a day-to-day basis. Well, so anytime someone asks, I'm like, thank you. Like I want Vermonters to know, but I also need to remember. So Jill, like tell I me know. about all the good work we did. I have to say time is so weird still, you know, like one day goes by in a minute, a week feels like a month, a year feels like a month. It's just a while. It's just what. Yeah. So I am so proud of the work that we did last legislative session. You know, we as Democrats are on a mission to create an economy that works for everyone in Vermont, not just a select few. And we continued our work on really important topics like housing. I can't have a conversation anywhere in the state where housing doesn't come up. Right. It's kind of like all roads lead back to housing (laughs) when we talk about what what we need more support for. So I was really proud of the work we did last legislative session, um, investing uh, in more affordable housing, looking at land use policies to uh, grow, to grow um, housing in a really thoughtful way, to do more supports for those who are unhoused. It was such a big focus. And we spent like that session 
over well, probably nearly $3 million on housing just itself. Um, so that was a really big uh, deal for us <laughs> in terms of what we were investing in. And we invested a lot of ARPA dollars in that as well. The Affordable Heat Act was a really big step in curbing our carbon emissions and setting out a path for how we can tackle climate change in Vermont. You know, we started out with the Global Warming Solutions Act, and the next step for that has been um, the Affordable Heat Act. And there's going to be a lot of opportunities for people to weigh in as that process plays out and how it's implemented. So there's going to be a lot of opportunity for people to be involved in that process, which I'm excited about. That was a really big deal. Another big policy that we got across the finish line, and I'm really disappointed that the governor vetoed it, was our child care bill. We passed a bill to ensure that we are paying our early childhood educators a fair wage, that we're giving them professional development opportunities, and that we're creating opportunities to create more spots in this state. You know, it's, it's heartbreaking when you have conversations with people who are literally debating whether it's better for them to leave their job and stay home with their child because they can't find a slot and having to make that tough decision, you know, about childcare being so expensive and having to choose between their job and their child. And that's not our values. That's not what we want people to be like struggling with. Right. So that was a really big deal. And that was years in the making to get to. And I'll just say, oh, God, the, was it two months ago? It was so exciting. I got to go to a child care center in South Burlington that was opening up and they were saying this, like, look, this is the result of this bill. We are opening this child care center and to meet some of the early childhood educators that were there and some of the kids and the parents. It was just a really special moment, right, mm -hmm. to see our words become a reality and to see it helping a community. So that was really exciting. One of the things I think that's the most exciting about that bill from as a legislator mm. um, is that, and you described it, like it was this three-legged stool, like mm -hmm. we need to increase wages so that people are valued and stay in the profession, enter the profession. We need to make sure that families can afford it so that folks actually use this. And we need to make sure that there's real quality there, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so that it works, so that it makes a difference in kids' lives and so that the folks working there are valued. And so often in the legislative process, like sort of essential to democracy is compromise. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we talk about on the show is like how many different ways there are to compromise, right? Yeah. And there's compromising where you sort of like cut everything that everyone wants in half so you can meet in the middle. And then there's compromising where you find out how to meet everyone's long-term needs in mm -hmm. various ways. And the childcare bill, we managed to keep that three-legged stool together as we moved it forward. And so that we didn't lose track of like why and how this will work. And I think we did that with the Affordable Heat Act too. We like, mm -hmm. you know, we might've slowed it down a little bit. We might've added more studies and checkbacks, but like in the end, we retained this essential like understanding of like, this is how we actually get this done to make a difference for Vermonters. And I am like, I'm so proud of our work when we do our work in that particular way. I love that. That's so true, Emily. And uh, one other bill I, ha I have to mention because yeah, yeah. I was- Mention I, all the bills. I, I, there's so, I mean, we could talk about what we passed for like five hours, but universal school meals was just a really important bill for our mm -hmm. kids. Um, you know, it was a program that started up 
um, expanded during COVID with federal funds. And we just saw the impact, the positive impact that it had on children and families. And so we found a way to make it a, a program that we could keep here in Vermont. And, you know, one of the theme, another theme that I hear um, with families across the state is their struggle um, to have good, high quality food. And one of the things I love about universal school meals is not only is it supporting our kids having really good food that's nutritious and reliable for them, but it's helping our, our local farms. So it's just a really great partnership and something that I'm really glad we were able to get across the finish line. Wonderful. Thank and you, that Jill. for me, that's like on the, that's one of those bills. Childcare is another one. We were like, the pandemic was a crisis. What can we learn from this terrible time yeah. in our country and in our world? And those are two bills that were like, yes, like this is a thing that has become clearer to all of us mm -hmm. that we've tested out and we can retain. And so that feels just, yeah, a big step forward. Yeah. Thank you for reminding us of that, Emily. There's so much of the pandemic I think people have forgotten for good reason. Yeah. It's like, ah, uh, no, 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 not yeah. going there. <laughs> But we forget what we have learned. And so thank you for reminding us, Emily, because there were some important lessons mm -hmm. the, the pandemic threw at us, whether we wanted to learn them or not. Yeah, life is sort of like that, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but this was a collective throw. It was. It was a collective. It was a yeah. collective. What are those? What's that Brene Brown thing? I think there's a cuss word in it, so I can't use it on the show anyway. So it doesn't matter. We'll move on. <laughs> so thank you for that that high level reminder of 2023 Jill so as we go into 2024 and we need to remind listeners that this is the second half of the biennium so a, a two-year session what's on the docket now as as you get ready to go back to Montpelier Absolutely. Well, it, we're going to be really continuing the work of the priorities that we had last legislative session. So obviously housing, you know, as I go across the state, it's so great to see housing going up, like I'm literally seeing like in districts across the state, new housing units, which is so great and fantastic, but there's more to do around housing. So we'll be doing work around not only looking at uh, opportunities for permanent affordable housing, landlord tenant opportunities to help with some of the challenges there, finding a long-term solution on how we can help those who are in house will be another big topic for us. And then on the land use side, we're, we are going to be getting three, I think we got one back already, but three different reports on Act 250, how we can update and modernize that program. And so that will be a priority. And I think along with that, we've learned some lessons from the floods that have mm -hmm. happened, the horrible floods that have been so devastating for families and businesses across the state. And so looking at some climate, some flood resiliency bills as well to kind of couple that with our land use policies. So just that seems to make sense to go together, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Where are, we, are we building in the right places? How can we do more to create flood resiliency? And so that's another topic that we're going to be taking up. For folks that want to, um, who are listening to the show and wanted to dive into sort of the housing, housing problems, housing solutions, and the fact that there's no one magic thing that's going to solve the day, we need to do many things at once simultaneously, we can do hard things and we can do many things and we can do complex things. 
we had a show a few weeks ago with Maura Collins. And so encourage listeners to go listen oh, to that God. for a deeper dive on housing. Back to you, Jill. Thank you, Emily. Mm -hmm. uh, she's doing incredible work. She's so fantastic. And another thing that we're going to be doing that's a good bridge to our world around climate change, not continuing our work there. So we'll be taking up the renewable energy standards, mm -hmm. looking at ways to increase our renewable energy tools in our state. So that's going to be a big bill. We, we did a study over the summer and we're going to be moving full steam ahead on that when we get back into the building. So that's going to be a, a big legislative priority. We're also going to be looking at health and public safety. Hmm. So I think one of the first bills that we're going to take up when we return in January is H72, which is a harm reduction bill that has overdose prevention sites in it. Hey. And I know this has been in the works also for a long time. <laughs> Communities are, are asking us for it, that there is such a great need out there for it. We'll be doing some more work to ensure that we're doing what we can to uh, help people get access to, to treatment. And on the public safety side, you know, well, we we're going to slow you down for a second. Mm -hmm. So if folks want to, because this is like, we're doing like a thousand things all yeah. in five minutes. And so just if folks are like, their ear is captivated by something Jill is saying, want to give further resources. So if you want to learn more about sort of legislative conversations and community conversations about harm reduction and overdose prevention centers and sites, you can go into a previous episode from November with David Mickenberg yeah. and Daniel Quip from our select board. Back to you, Jill. Wow, you've really, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, well, we need, you know, we need content every mm -hmm. week. So we're covering, we're covering all the big hits. <laughs> all the big hits, yes. Another priority that, that we'll be focusing on is public safety. So there mm -hmm. is a backlog in our court system. And there was a little bit of that before COVID. And then during COVID, it just, like so many other things, right? It just made the, the problem so, so much worse. And so... We'll be making some pretty big investments in the judiciary to help them have the workforce that they need to get the work done and to really address that backlog that's there because it's really been a problem across the state. And in that vein as well, you know, can I, can I jump in on this one? Yeah, go for it. Thank you. So I, you know, on this whole idea of the judicial backlog, one of the, this is something that I sort of didn't know into diving into these conversations with our chair of judiciary, Martin Lalonde, and then um, our state senator down here, Nader Hashim, is that there's, you know, all of this research, like, you know, decades and decades of research about what actually works in the criminal justice system in order to prevent recidivism, in order to, and in order to prevent, like, to have prison or court time actually be a deterrent to crime, which I think is how we all sort of imagine it works, but it actually only works in specific situations. And one of the biggest pieces of it actually working is if there's a short time frame between the activity and the court time, the court appearance, and whatever the consequences are right. that the court decides on. And the sort of tighter the time frame there is there, basically the better it works. And so we've had a really interesting situation here in Vermont with um, both the governor being very slow to appoint judges 
And so we've had a big backlog because of that. There's the COVID backlog. And then there's also, we really have been underfunding the judiciary for a long time, which also adds to the backlog. So I'm excited that we're, so this might sound like, oh, wow, you're going to, you know, like you're going to give more money to the courts, no big deal. But there's like huge consequential pieces that come from that. So back to you, Jill. Thanks, Emily. It is really a big deal. And I think this is one very clear, tangible thing that we can do that we know will make a difference. And Emily, you you mentioned the, um, the amount of time it's taken the governor to appoint judges, you know, there was, it took, you know, the administration over six months to appoint five judges. And mm-hmm. that's a problem. You know, we can't have that amount of time, especially with the backlog, right? It's just contributing to this problem. So we're going to be looking at a bill to help speed up that process. We want really good, high quality judges, but we also need to make sure that we're doing it in a timely way that's like not causing more harm in the system. And so uh, we'll be doing, we'll be taking up a bill that, that changes that timeline. So I think that those two things will do a lot to help with backlog in the courts. I want to mention two more things on my list. So workforce development, we have for several years been putting money into workforce development programs into critical careers where we know that there is a great need. So for example, the cost of traveling nurses is just, the it's doing so, so much damage to our hospital and healthcare system. And the cost has just made it almost impossible for uh, hospitals and providers. And so we've been investing in programs that are like grants and tuition forgivable loans to help incentivize Vermonters to get into the healthcare field. And so we're starting to see the progress of that program and seeing that there are people in it. There's actually a wait list in some mm-hmm. of these programs, which really? shows the interest is there. So Again, it's not going to solve our healthcare needs, but it's going to help and in a big way. And so these critical careers, again, I mentioned nursing, but also, you know, we're doing all this work around climate and trying to incentivize people to get heat pumps. And we also lack the workforce in the climate area. So uh, another critical career is like for plumbers and electricians. And so that work is underway we'll, and we'll continue that because I think it's just so important. You know, I think there's this debate about workforce in this state and whether to, you know, support and expand opportunities for our own, for Vermonters or to incentivize people to come to our state. And I just think that we, um, we are seeing that investing in Vermonters is working and people want to take these opportunities. So we should work focused on those and expand those opportunities and keeping Vermonters here and giving them these great tools to do jobs that we need. It's just like, it's a, it's a triple win. So. And I think a big part of that is sort of, we did all of this great work last year and the year before, and we have been for a few years really investing in these areas and setting up, you know, opportunities for scholarships and loan forgiveness and strengthening those systems. And what I've found is a lot of Vermonters don't know that we're doing it. Yeah. And so I have friends who are like, oh, I want to become a therapist. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Did you know that you can go, you know, you go to school totally for free to be a therapist? And they're like, oh, really? I had no idea. And then we try to figure it out together how for how they can do that. And even that's a lift. And so I think part, you know, and I'm sure you're going to touch on this, Jill, but like 
how do we actually actually strengthen our capacity to yeah. make sure Vermonters are reaping the benefits of our amazing legislation? Mm-hmm. So yes, it's so true, so true. I mean, let me just give you an example of something. This was a bill we passed a couple of years ago because, again, workforce has been a theme and a priority for us, and it allowed tech centers to use money out of the Ed Fund to buy like a dilapidated house to more for the for the students to learn the skills on how to fix it, how to build it back to be something better that they could go back on the market. And then local construction companies were, were also involved in that and had an opportunity to meet the students who were potential employees in the future, right? And so um, it was great. I went up to Newport and it was the North Country Tech Center was the first one to purchase a home. And so to be there, it was just so incredible like, to see these students giving me a tour of the house that they're working on fixing up and just so excited and so proud to be like, we tore this ceiling out and we're going to do this over here. And it's great because they're learning these, these uh, incredibly um, important skills they're gaining confidence. We're going to have this house that's been vacant for like 10 years, get back on the market to house some more people. And it's just, it was was so exciting to see this program up and running and making a difference. And so that's what, you know, motivates me and keeps me going on this mission around workforce, because I think it is so important to our, to our economy and our communities. So and when that's like when that's working, people get to actually feel useful, right? Like how amazing that is. Like all of these critical careers, they're critical because they're like critical to our community's yeah, functioning, it's, it's right? Meaningful, meaningful it's work. meaningful. Yeah. And so you have these high school kids who like, you know, a lot of kids go to their tech centers because they they're more practical, sort of more practically minded people. They need to see sort of a closer return on their learning mm-hmm. time. And there's like nothing realer than like actually building a home for someone and then seeing it's a real home. Like you're not learning this stuff hypothetically. You're like mm-hmm. creating a home for someone while you're learning. It's just, it's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. It is. It's it so is. beautiful. All right. My last one. Okay. On the list. I know this is, this has gone long, but I get That's so excited. Olga, about all the work we're like gearing up to do this session. The last point I want to make around this uh, upcoming legislative session is our work and our responsibility as a legislature around accountability. We pass over probably a hundred bills and we make these investments in taxpayer dollars into critical programs that we all care about, like housing, like flood recovery, like workforce development, like childcare, right? We need to make sure that these investments are making the difference that we intended it to have we want to ensure that there's transparency in the system mm-hmm. and that the administration is implementing a program or um, getting dollars out the door on time in the way that we intended. And we're just, you know, every week I hear a story about a program that never got started that was supposed to or money going out the door in a different way than legislative intent. And we just we owe it to the t- taxpayers to do better <laughs> and to dig deeper and to hold whoever, you know, it doesn't matter, whatever party the administration is, Democrat, Republican, we need to make sure that we are doing right by the taxpayers 
and making sure that there's transparency and accountability. And so that's going to be another big focus of our, our upcoming session. Wow. And so that I'm really excited about that one too. Of course, you know what what a dork I am about accountability. Yeah. And so we're going to be both like strengthening our systems to be doing accountability in a long-term way. So it's not you know, a lot of these things that we hear about that aren't working, that aren't meeting legislative intent, audit findings that are not being followed up on either mm-hmm. federal or state level, we're learning about those in some ways accidentally or in the course yeah. of doing like sort of the next, like someone will go to do, me for instance, will go to do the next step and realize the first step never happened, even though it was supposed yeah. to. And so we're going to strengthen our capacity to be sort of finding those sort of naturally want to call them anomalies, but they don't really feel like anomalies anymore. They feel like a trend, Hmm. but naturally find our capacity to sort of have systems to learn when legislative intent is being followed or not. If we're making a difference, one of our very first episodes was with Drew Wesley when she did um, performance accountability for the agency of human services. Mm -hmm. And what that, what that looks like, our ability to do that. And then this year, we're just like diving deep in every committee all the time. And to really say like, okay, this was law, what happened? Okay, this is law, what happened? Okay, we spent all this money, did it go where it was supposed to? Why has this agency in my community been waiting for a grant that they won for like nine months? No Mm. one can function that way. And it's funny, you know, what you said about regardless of party, Jill, I was just on a podcast with the Ways and Means chair from Minnesota yesterday. And oh, how cool. It was cool. It was really fun. I really like her. We see each other at a lot of conferences. Um, She's really fun. We started at the same time as chair. But, you know, they have a um, what's it called with all three? Anyway, they have a system trifecta that's what everyone describes it as okay so anyway yeah yeah all the all the the pieces are in the same party right (laughs) an undivided government and she was saying that like she's doing a lot of work this session to make sure all the things that they passed are you know actually happening and how incredibly awkward that is for her Mm. because they don't have divided government and it was one of the first times i felt grateful (laughs) for the fact that we can do like, you know, it is our responsibility to be doing accountability work and how sometimes it is easier to do that when you have a divided government. You mentioned, Emily, that this feels a little bit like a trend around accountability and maybe why things aren't happening. Has the legislature, this is for you too, Jill, seen why this trend might be happening? Is it staff are under-resourced, something else in the system's missing, like where's the road bumps? So I served thanks to the very generous appointment of our speaker on our summer government accountability committee, who is tasked to rethink how we do accountability. And I guess I would say the biggest piece, Olga, in answer to your question is there's no one answer. It's all the things, um, which is my theme for the month. It's all the things. But One, we have the administration, and I think the legislature is in some ways complicit with this, has been, because we have not been holding the agencies as accountable as possible, has been under-resourcing state government for a decade. And that includes, you know, level funding department budgets, um, when we know level funding actually means cuts. 
That includes not hiring vacant positions. That's a huge trend. Um, and we understand this is a difficult hiring environment, but this is like a specific strategy, budgeting strategy, not hiring open positions. It's not about not being able to fill those positions. You know, not passing, not proposing or passing fee bills is another sort of like very, is essentially like how a lot of state government is supposed to be being able to sort of grow department budgets and the administration hasn't done that. So there's that like sort of starving of administrative capacity that's happened over the last decade, which leads to, you know, accidents, not having, you know, pe not enough people being ready and able to be really exploring legislation and following it through to the end, really delayed rulemaking, folks just not having the time to follow through whenever Monter calls them, all of those things and like really challenging regulatory hurdles. Mm -hmm. And then there's, you know, the other side, and then people get burnt out because they're working too hard and that makes them, you know, have an even more challenging time fulfilling their jobs. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the other piece of this, which is definitely happening more and more, which is just the politics of it. And it's like an obstinance from the administration that I think Jill is probably better positioned to describe. <laughs> 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 well, I want to say, like, I, it's true, you know, I what I'm seeing is this sort of starving of state government. And, you know, our, there is a role for government. We've it, It's so critical. Uh, it's like the base for public health and safety. And, you know, just to put more context around that, the last time I checked, there was 1,100 vacancies and only around 200 posted. Why is wow. that? Wow. Why, you know, what is this because of priority? Is this because of time? Like, I don't know. I don't know. But that's huge. There's 54 plowing vacancies. We were going into the winter and mm -hmm. like the, the basic, basic functions. And so I think Emily is spot on that there is sort of this lack of sense of urgency and and not really doing the the work to ensure that uh, government, you know, state governments fulfilling its role in these vital services. And that's just really scary and, and not good for folks. And, you know, I'll say burnout definitely is part of it and politics. You know, I, some of the programs that we've seen that have, haven't gotten stood up or money haven't going out the door some of them have been really part, like parts of key priorities for the legislature. And I really hope that's not the case, but there are days where, you know, we get examples and it, and it, and it feels, <laughs> it feels like that. So again, that's why it's so important for us to dig deep into this accountability work, because it, it's our job to make sure that government's serving the people the way that it's, it's intended to, it's supposed to be. And so, you know, we're going to, we're really going to do that work. We owe it to Vermonters and we need to make sure that they, you know, we have their back when, when there's a crisis and, you know, we hear so much like the other day, hearing stories from different towns that were impacted by the floods and they just felt that, you know, state government didn't show up for them and that's not okay. So we will be doing a lot of work around accountability for sure. Wonderful. I want to pause just briefly. This conversation was so great. So I didn't stop to take a break so we could hear from some underwriters. So I just want to say, I hope folks stay around to the end of the show. I'll put some underwriters there because we do appreciate them helping us on WVEW. 
107.7. Um, I also want to thank BCD, BCTV for sharing the video version of our podcast with public access stations around the state and New England. And Emily, what are we going to remind people of at this time? The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the hosts and the guests respectively, and not the station, platform, nor employer of anyone here. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So housekeeping out of the way, Jill, if you don't mind, I'd love to switch gears a little bit and talk about how the house comes up with its priorities. And, you know, are there committee meetings? Is it just based on your party's platform? Like, how does this happen? Oh, you have the best questions today. I'm so excited. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It is a really great question. Just like everything, it, it, there, it happens in a couple different ways. So obviously the party that holds the majority of seats sets the agenda, but help mm -hmm. with committee work. So our uh, Democratic caucus will spend time over the summer and fall getting feedback from its caucus, from you know Democrats across the state about what they're hearing in their communities. I'll say we are at an interesting point of time. We have 104 Democrats in the House, the largest majority that the Democrats have had in history. Wow. And we have picked up seats down in the kingdom to southern Vermont, all across the state. And so we work really hard to get that feedback about what, what are you hearing in your community and what, what do we need to prioritize when we get back in the building? That is one of the ways that priorities get set. Another way is that I, we have uh, 13 committees in the House, and those committees, when they get back into session, either pick up where they left off in terms of to policy topics that they were working on, and they come together and get feedback from different stakeholders in their relevant policy jurisdiction and find out, are there any... any something that's not working or something that's working really well that we need to do more of. And they really dig deep into hearing from people and finding out uh, what is it that we need to focus on. So those are the, the two ways that we come up with our priorities. And then we obviously we hear from the administration and we listen to what they're also caring about and want to work on and find ways to collaborate and work together. Emily, as someone who is chairing a committee, What's the session looking like for you? What are you lining up? So I have a slightly different process than I think a lot of other committees do to set my priorities because my top priority is to ensure that there are adequate revenues to meet the needs of all of the committee's priorities, all the other committee's priorities, including the appropriations committee's priorities in a way that is you know, fair, progressive and meets Vermonters' needs. And so we do do sort of exactly the same work as a Ways and Means Committee. You know, each committee member spends time talking to the other legislators in their area to see what they're hearing about what is needed in terms of revenues for the new year. We, um, and then I talk to all of the committee chairs as well as the caucus about what their priorities are and if there are going to be revenue needs attached to that. And so we have sort of that work that we're prepping for. And then simultaneously, we also have tax policy. You know, there's this funny thing, this like ongoing little joke within the legislature that maybe is not interesting to anyone outside of the legislature, <laughs> but I'm going to, or maybe outside of the Ways and Means Committee even, but I'm going to share it, which is basically there's, you know, we always talk about policy committees and money committees. 
And I think it, when we do that, we lose track of the fact that the way we spend money, like mm-hmm. the actual functioning of how we spend money has real implications for people's lives and the functioning of government and the way we raise money has real implications for people's lives. And so when we think about things like the child tax credit, the earned income tax credit, how Vermonters are able or not able to access those huge anti-poverty measures, we do work on that. This year, we're going to do a chunk of work on tax sales Mm -hmm. and how municipal tax sales happen or don't happen. Um, There's a lot of tax sales are. Yeah. So if someone owes taxes on their property and don't pay them in a timely way, a municipality can sell that property in order to recoup the taxes. Mm -hmm. And the way that is done is very inconsistent from town to town, like really like strikingly inconsistent from town to town and not always fair to those taxpayers or those homeowners. And in a time where we have this really massive housing crisis, we don't want to be putting more Vermonters on the street because of procedural challenges. And so we're going to be focusing on that and really just sort of focusing on justice around taxes this year, how to make sure that people are getting their needs met, that they know what they can file for. We've done a lot of extending our tax credits to new Americans, new Vermonters, to migrant workers. And so making sure that those folks know that they have access to some of these tax benefits, Mm -hmm. um, that kind of work. Great. We have just about five minutes Jill. I know it went fast. It went Mm -hmm. super fast. Great conversations too. I'm just going to use this proposal as an example. I know that it may not follow everything exactly, but so last week, Emily and I spoke to um, Annika from Vermont's Funding Vermont's Future Coalition. Mm -hmm. From Public Assets Institute. Yes, Public Assets. And we were talking about the 3% proposal to tax at a 3% surcharge on incomes $500,000 or more. So this is a proposal that's coming from the community to the legislature. How do proposals like that make their way into the legislative process? Not. Oh, I think Make Big Oil Pay is another really good example of that, too. Okay, yeah. I talked about how we set legislative priorities and we have members giving feedback to what they're hearing. And I talked about committees bringing different stakeholders in to talk about what they care about. And a lot of those stakeholders have campaigns that they are working on that represents their values and what they're hearing. So whether it's Public Access Institute or VPIRG or other, you know, other groups, they come in with their priorities and and share what they've learned. And so, you know, it is in our process that we, we hold hearings and we we take these policy proposals and we vet them. We see if there's support for for it in our chamber. We hear about how it impacts people, how it fits in with other priorities that we have. And so it goes through a vetting process. And people sometimes get frustrated about the legislative process taking a long time for policies to get across the finish line into the governor, but it's set up in a way to do that on purpose to make sure that we're really doing our due diligence to set up the strongest policy possible for whatever mission we are trying to accomplish. And so that's that's like the high level overview of how 
a policy idea or campaign like that would play out in the legislature. And the way I think about it is sort of each legislator has a geographic constituency, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then a lot of the advocates that bring these proposals forward have sort of issue constituencies. And so that could be the Bankers Association bringing sort of what bankers think and might need fixing or strengthening, or it could be cannabis growers, or it could be farmers, or it could be folks living in poverty, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. That's sort of how I think about it is like, and all of those different constituencies all get woven together once we're in the building. Thank you. Well, I think it's worth noting only because a lot of states, they'll have ballot measures. And so you can get a ballot measure put on the ballot. And we don't do that necessarily in Vermont. And so I think it's just worth noting how things come from the public to the legislature. Mm-hmm. Jill, any last words as we go into 2024? Oh, I would say that I'm really proud and honored to work with so many fabulous representatives. The, the, the folks in the building care so much about their communities and want to do everything we can to support uh, whatever the needs are. And we're going to do that. I feel like our message is like, we have your back and we're going to make sure that everyone has a fair shot at a at life that they want in Vermont. And things have been really difficult and we hear that. And we've been in the trenches with folks as they've been getting through some really tough times in communities. And we hear that and we're looking forward to getting to work and address those things when we get back into session in January. Wonderful. Thank you, Representative Jill Krowinski, Speaker of the House. I'm so glad you could join us today. Emily, if people want to follow up with you, how can they do that? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org, where um, I have not updated my website in a while, but my contact information is still updated there, and you can get in touch with me there. And I should just mention, you can get in touch with the speaker through the legislative website as well. And the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, airs every Friday at 2 and then is rebroadcast on Wednesday morning. You can also find the podcast version of this wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. And we always love it when people do. And on that note, hey, everyone. Happy 2023, goodbye 2023, and hello 2024. We wish everyone an abundant, healthy, happy new year. Take care, everyone. Happy new year. Happy new year. Happy new year.